Well, welcome back to Kimmy Real with Alexander Garrett. And uh, with me on the line, you've heard him a, a couple of weeks ago when he first started this journey here in New York City. For uh, By the way, Marty Brownstein, thanks for joining me today. Glad to be on again now, with you, Alex. You've been talking about the courage, a courageous story in the Holocaust mm-hmm. um, with this husband and wife. And we had such an amazing time listening to this story uh, in New York City at the Museum of the Jewish Heritage. And uh, thanks for coming to that for, for the big event. And thanks for them for having you. Well, yes, yes. And actually, I had four public events during my week and a half plus in New York City with two events of discussion inside school classrooms. And it was, uh, again, a great reception when I was in New York. You know, I'm based in the San Francisco Bay Area. But I take this story to other cities all the time, 15 other metropolitan areas, and my sixth time to New York. And you came to the one I had at the Museum of Jewish Heritage there on October 29th to even get the experience of seeing it live in front of an audience. So, you know, thank you to them and everybody else and to you for supporting my journey with this. And uh, for those who are just tuning in for the first time, tell us a bit about why you were in New York, why you went to the National Publicity Summit. What is your story? Yeah, so I'll go with the, the story itself, is, which is conveyed in my book, Two Among the Righteous Few. So this is a true story of a Dutch Christian couple named Franz and Mien Weinacher, who during World War II, they got involved when most did not. And in the end, they saved the lives of over two dozen Jews from certain death, including a very meaningful personal connection I have in this story. It's the extra spice that you know. And so my journey in sharing the story is well into its ninth year. I left New York now with 718 events under my belt and more to come. And what brought me back to New York this time, to your question, was people I met when I was there on previous trips. My last was early May of this year. And they, what's been key in this journey, I've had people be supporters, and they've introduced me to people in other organizations who've agreed to say, yes, we would love to put a program on for you. And all four events this time came from people I've met previously or other contacts who made the introductions to open the door. Now you, you say get that, you keep coming back. Well, I was going to say, I, I, I know that you're still going to be doing these tours, so you don't want to give away the surprise, but there was such a warm feeling at the reveal of why this story is so personal to you. Um, but you also did interfaith, and how was the interfaith perspective uh, how did they take how do they receive your story extremely well very positive it's interesting because in a in and i learned this early in the journey my first month or two i met a former parish priest who was involved in something called the interfaith peace project through a good friend of mine and he said to me and i hadn't even thought of this you should be speaking at interfaith supportive congregations as one of your markets for this and he says, a lot of people talk that stuff. Your story's real, because these were, and they happen to be Catholic in this case, but these Christians were willing to help save the lives of Jews when most didn't bother. This is interfaith at its best. Those principles and values of respect and unity, just go to interfaith supportive congregations. And that's one of the things, that the, and I've been in a variety of different faith places, and occasionally and I had one of the events in New York where it was a synagogue with two churches coming together to be co-host. So then we had even a a more interfaith audience in the mix rather than just Christian or just Jewish. And that was wonderful. Even over the years, I had a couple interfaith supportive Muslim organizations have me come in to tell the story. Haven't had a bad audience yet. 
But when you get that mix to what you're asking of its people together, it just promotes the unity even stronger. And certainly in the program I had, the last one in New York on November 6th, which was under the commemoration of Kristallnacht, the, uh, not only did the hosts from the synagogue speak, but the two pastors who had come in also spoke, and they talked about the troubling times they see in this country, and these acts of hate and intolerance that bothers them greatly, which is why they really resonated to this story of this is about bringing people together, and that we all are one people. Now, so you know, great. you wrote a journal, a journal about all this journey, and so you have it in writing. Where can people find your journals from New York? Ah, good question. <laughs> uh, you would find it on my Facebook page. As I, these were actually postings I did, uh, and you made me think maybe I should put it on my website as well. I haven't put it up there yet. But if they went to my Facebook page, which is under Marty A. Brownstein, when they go into Facebook, they would they would find the the different postings that were throughout with some other things included. But I may end up putting it on. You, you've triggered a suggestion of maybe I should be putting it on my website as well. Well, because it was so well written, I'm like, you got to put it up. I thought you might have put it up on there as yeah, that. Yeah, I hadn't document. done that yet. I hadn't thought about it. Thank you. So, <laughs> well, that's why you're one of my great supporters now. So it's terrific visiting with you. And so we were at that museum, and it was a pretty good crowd. Yes. And as I was saying, you could just tell in the room the emotions, but there were some good questions asked, and uh, I just thought such an engaging conversation uh, that Tuesday afternoon. Exactly. Exactly right. That's why I was so glad you came, because you can't recreate that. But seeing this in a live audience, as you did, and that was how all my audience have been, whether large or small. And that was a good turnout. Who knows? I think maybe 60-plus people, that room was pretty well filled. What was neat is not only did they engage well when I'm doing the storytelling, because who doesn't like a good story, but you you hit on something, Alex, is that the Q&A, boy, we must have gone, I often just think it's going to be 10 minutes or so, and I think we went 20 to 30 minutes, because then one question prompted another question. And and certainly we wrap it up with the final, uh, let's pull it together about whatever happened to that baby, which is one of the challenges I mentioned in the presentation. And you commented to me about there were some uh, not dry eyes in the house after that. True. So. I, I was even tearing up a little bit because if you hear the story and this goes national, international. So where we'll get to this in a second, but where are you going to be next to tell your story? Yes. So now I'm back here in the Bay Area, back home. And next week, uh, to the interfaith thing, I am going to San Luis Obispo, which is kind of halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco on the central coast. Beautiful area. And somebody I met a year ago at a program I did in his workplace started reaching out in his community because he wanted the community at least to get the story. And he got the Jewish Community Center and a Christian organization to come together and they're going to be hosting it at a, the synagogue. A synagogue will be the site. So it's really an interfaith gathering for their smaller community that may draw very well. That's going to be happening next Thursday evening, November 21st at 7 p.m. Come one, come all. And then I have a workplace program I have built around this story that's titled The Courage and Compassion to Do the Right Thing, A Lesson in Making a Positive Difference. Making a Positive Difference, it's theme which combines the storytelling with let's now talk about lessons you can take from the story, lessons of character, of ethics, 
to really make a positive difference in doing your job. And that's rich discussion. And I'm going to be doing that in a one of the cities there. They're doing a staff retreat day, and I'm a couple hours of that day right near that same area. So it worked out very well. And then uh, Saturday, I drive a little farther down into the outskirts of Los Angeles. There's a Catholic retreat center there called Mater de la Rosa. And that one's just for a parent's teen retreat that they're bringing me in to do a, a mini version of the Making a Positive Difference for that group. So that's the near future. And got a gig in Hawaii December 13th for Hawaii Employers Council. And I'll be in the Phoenix area for a couple of months, mid-January to mid-March for events there. So more happening. And by the way, Marty doesn't just travel alone. He travels with his beloved wife. Yeah. And uh, obviously... And number one supporter. Yes, and number one supporter. In fact, I remember... When we were on Skype, she's like, you know, you got to turn the camera this way and all that. So she's, she's got your back 100% of the way. And as you, hers, um, what, what's the farthest you guys have traveled? Like, this has been years of this tour. What, what's the farthest you guys have traveled? We've gone to, we've gone once out of country, which was to Canada, to Vancouver. And had a couple of events there that went very well. Everything else, we've gone, you know, west coast to east coast. Midwest, so I'm already talking to an organization that will probably be in January 2021 in San Antonio, which would be a new metropolitan area to get into. Some I've gone back to. So it's been all over, you know, certainly U.S., and then one time I was able to do something up in Vancouver, a pretty area, which worked out very well. I have family actually there and had a wonderful turnout of family that night. That's amazing. At the event as well. So it was very unique that way. So it's been such a variety of places, different cities, and as mentioned, I, I, there's probably half dozen of these that I've gone to more than once that I've come back to the city for you know meeting new people, getting into new venues, all unexpected that's been very neat about it. And even, I'll just, if I can just add quickly, sure. a quick little story, the key in this journey is supporters, people who see what I'm doing, care, and say, I can help. I go to the Phoenix area every winter for a couple months and do events, including book discussions inside schools there, as they do here. And a teacher there that I worked with last year, I'm coming back again to her classes. Well, she's originally from a place called Tomahawk, Wisconsin. That's way up north. Don't go in the winter. Her sister is the assistant principal there. When she told her about this story, they got me coming next May for a whole program of things inside the classroom, a community storytelling presentation, and a workplace who's this corporate sponsor for the whole thing is going to have me do my Making a Positive Difference program there, all because of people who care and support me in this. Now, Marty, you're, you're very chill on the radio. You're very relaxed on the radio, but I saw the presentation. You get animated. You get lively because <laughs> you show your passion, and I really admire that. Well, thank you. Thank you. As, as you kind of imply there, and people say it to me all the time, you're a great storyteller. That's I've right. Got a great story to tell. And, and you so do. I guess it's, you know, it's akin, it's almost like an out-of-body experience maybe. It's akin to a, a, a singer or other kind of performer who just has that hit song, and he or she keeps singing it over, and I'm, I have different versions of the presentation, but there's something in it that I can't explain that just triggers me to just, boom, then I'm introduced as like, I, the passion does come out if people tell me, and so, and it hasn't. I don't have to manufacture it. It's it's there because I believe in the story, and what's happened because of the journey of the way people are responding. If people were indifferent to this, 
or hostile, <laughs> I would have ended this long ago. But they keep telling me, thank you for this inspirational story. Thank you for this story of positive values. We need even more today in this society that gets too divisive and polarized sometimes. So keep going. Absolutely. And uh, so you get animated. And I got to ask this because you had a beautiful slideshow. You might see this slideshow that you made hundreds of times, but I've got to believe that helps your passion to see these pictures that you took and, and the maps you've laid out. That's even more depth to, to the presentation. Absolutely. Part of what's kind of evolved over the years when I started out, I just talked to the presentation. It was still a good storytelling, but then I built in the, you know, the visuals to go with it as you learn over time and just, it adds to the audience experience of it too. And so it's just been things that continue to evolve. And certainly if someone goes to my website, there are a few videos of live presentations, both inside workplaces and this one gave me a video. They were they were filming here at the Museum of Jewish Heritage where you were. So we added it to the website recently, too. So if people want to find it and find out my special secret to the story, they could find that out. Of course, they can get the book and do that, too. So, yeah, it's just uh, thank you. I mean, you, you coming, you got this so well. You really got to the experience of how special this story is. Now, uh, if I, I'm not mistaken, you also inspired a certain family of a 1936 German that was not allowed to play. You got their family members to come out, and that was pretty amazing to me. I believe her oh. name was Margaret. Uh, I forget her last name now, but the, the 1936 German Olympian who was not allowed to play. Yeah, yeah, yes. It was, it's a cousin of theirs, yes. Well, I have another book in the works that I'm seeking a publisher for titled Woman of Valor. And this is the true story of a woman named Edda Hyatt, Etta Robel in her married years when she actually lived in New York. But during the Holocaust and World War II, she was from Poland. And she ends up escaping and getting into the woods and becomes part of the leadership of an all-Jewish resistance group. And, in, and I've got the support of that family in putting this story together. And in doing the research, I met a few other descendants of other partisans that were with her unit. And one of them was a saint came from the same town as her, a man named Chaim Grinbaum. And the, some of the people that came that day were his children, who also I was met and had put the word out, and they came and brought others with them and their spouses. And so, and they came also, the other members of that family came to an event I had the following Sunday in Long Island and Belmore. So that's been neat. That's why I'm hoping. The challenge of finding another publisher will soon be conquered. So that that story is, it's so relevant to this one. These are stories of resistance and rescue that people often don't realize that the Holocaust actually has some inspirational stories. These two are so complimentary. I got them. Hopefully I'll be speaking on Woman of Valor more in the future. Well, and and we would would love that. Now, I've got a, a question. So obviously this past weekend... We honored the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. I feel like that story would, would really impact Berl, Berliner, I don't even know how you call them, but Berlin residents because of what they went through with the wall. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's a story also of freedom. You know, that was the changing and the opening up of Germany to become one society again and to become a democratic society versus the dictatorship that it was on the East German side. So, very, that wall is a, really a symbolism between freedom and oppression. And the fact that it came down 30 years ago 
and I just opened up a whole new life for people in Germany is, is remarkable. And these are great stories, and, and they do complement with what I'm doing about the stories of people who cared, people who were trying to help others to make life better. And, we need uh, more of that, I always say. And, and Marty, you are, as you mentioned, the, uh, I believe, the Positive Difference Program, which you just uh-huh. mentioned a while ago. But uh, you're doing a lot of good, and, and I can't wait to continue this with you because, obviously, you're not stopping. You're not slowing down. New York was great, but you're not settled for that, and I really admire that. Well, thank you, Alex. And, again, to return the, the compliment, What's kept the journey going is I've met people along the way who've become supporters, who've, you know, made the introductions, put the word out to friends and family, come see an event, or done other things like you're doing with this podcast to just help me spread the word, to provide that exposure. Those little things make a big difference. I mean, and to your point of thank you about the good I'm doing with the story, not long ago, and it came through one of my supporters, a teacher, I was nominated and received what's called the Jefferson Award here in the Bay Area. And that comes from an organization called Multiplying Good, formerly called the Jefferson Awards Foundation, started in 1972 by a few people, including Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, to recognize people doing service to the community and public good for America. So I I don't know that I'm deserving, but I'm very honored by it. The uh, CBS affiliate out here did a little feature piece, ran it recently. So nice things that have happened. But I, in, in brief, I'm the humble messenger for two heroes, Franz and Mean Weinacher, these two rescuers who made it one time in their life something, did something so extraordinary. Boy, did they make a positive difference. Well, and, you know, I, I got to ask this because I'm, I'm trying to jog my memory here. Were they ever afraid to to bring in Jews that were looked at, looked for by Nazi Germany, or were they fearless? Yeah, good question. And I'll t- to the people they helped, and, and I'll even back up for a second, it was very interesting because they lived in the countryside. There were no Jews who lived in their area. They had never met a Jewish person in their lives prior to getting involved in this rescue activity, which wasn't done by design. It was done almost by accident. It's just a call for help came, and they said yes when most people wouldn't have. And one thing led to another. To the people they helped, they always appeared calm, cool, and selfless. So if they were fearful, and likely they were at times, they never showed it. They kept it behind closed doors. And they were able to put up the brave front, and they will even face not only the threats of raids on their house, where they were hiding some of the people, they actually had two real raids hit the house. And you want to talk about some scary, scary thing, and yet they were calm, cool, and collected, pulled it off, which is part of the key to that, because if you look all stressed out, boy, you, you're a dead giveaway. Something must be going on in here. And they didn't get caught. And and they had, and Franz, with mean support, created this rescue network placing Jews and other people's homes in their local area. And that was full of hassles, and yet... They didn't give up. They didn't get frustrated. They just kept going, okay. That's why the story teaches wonderful lessons. They were just so resourceful. To first you run into an obstacle, then find another way. And they kept doing it over a two-year period. And uh, I, I know, I don't know if you want to give this away, but I know that the part of the house where they did, you know, shelter these Jews that were, uh, Jewish folks that were on the loose, kids even, um, that room has been destroyed now. Is that correct? Is that... Yeah, what what they did is they they sheltered everybody throughout the house. 
people slept uh, living room attic and all that. But they had the one of the first Jewish adults they took in this young married couple. The husband was an architect, and he designed it and worked with Franz to build a hiding room within the house. So they took some wide space and just kind of put walls. And if you'd never been there before, you never would have detected it. The hiding room became the place when that boom, 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 knock on the door came, where everyone, like, practiced like a fire drill, went in there, and that's what saved them. And so while they didn't all reside in that, two of the kids, they had cots in there, so it was like a small bedroom. Actually, they had them sleep there because they were such sound sleepers. If something happened, they were worried they'd never get them up in time, so they just had them sleep there. But it was just a a room to be, it's like a secret passageway into something no one would ever detect. The home then was a rental. You don't do that normally in rentals. That's back to their risk-taking approach. But uh, later, Franz Weinacher Jr., one of the sons, took ownership of the house, and now he's remodeled it. And when he did, of course, he didn't need to keep the hiding room anymore. So it's not there itself, but the same place is still there, even though the house is a different look today. And the spirit of caregiving, of of giving your all, I'm Mm -hmm. sure still ruminates through that house and by the people who live in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Interesting. And my very first time when I say I stumble in the story by accident, my wife and I are get directed to the home because it's still next to this church that has a landmark, this big vacant church. And the home that once belonged to Franz Weinacher. In fact, one of his sons lives there, we were told, and we went there. When you walk down the driveway of the house, on the front side of the the wall, you know, by the front door, is the word shalom. And that, that alone, to your thing of the welcoming and caring, to, yeah, one of the other Weinacher siblings also has that at her house. They They don't know any Hebrew, but they understand that word and what it means to them. And they got it. I asked Franz Jr. how he got it, just some friend he saw. And he thought, gee, I like this, the message that I wanted on my house. So any visitor coming sees the shalom that's like a foot in size when you come to his house. And his oldest sister, Nellie, has that at her house, too. I think that speaks to their character that was passed on from their parents. And um, I was just thinking of that. Like I think it's called the mezuzah, where they have it outside the house. It sounds like that kind of. Yeah, mezuzah is a little different, that being a symbol of this is a Jewish family here, which they don't have because they're not. Oh, right. That's true. But it's just the word shalom, you know, in big letters, which, you know, shalom means peace, hello, goodbye. But it's really, its message is one, certainly one of the aspects of the message is welcoming. That hello, you know, visitors are welcome here. And that's how they are. We have been back three times since, my wife and I for visits to the Netherlands and have spent more time with, now there's five Weinacher siblings and met some of their kids and grandchildren too. They support me doing this book, Two Among the Righteous Few, about their parents. And uh, you got to buy it, Two Among the Righteous Few, about the Weinachers. And you know what's interesting, Marty, I was, I was playing back your talk in my head as we were doing this. Uh-huh. For those who like the cultural aspect of this podcast and cultural aspect of the Jews fighting back, you mentioned Schindler's List. What's the relation to that movie with, with this whole story? Yes, well, the the common theme is Franz and his wife, Mean, her full name, Hermina. Franz and Hermina Weinacher, like Oscar Schindler, have been recognized righteous among the nations. Two Among the Righteous Few, the book title, that's where the word righteous comes from. And that's the honor that comes from Yad Vashem, 
the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, Israel, the first ever created and the most prominent still in the world today. And it's the honor that goes to the non-Jews who, during the course of the Holocaust, risked their own lives to try to help save the lives of Jews. You know, the title of the book is not Two Among the Righteous Many. It's Two Among the Righteous Few. The most prominent of those names, thanks to the movies over the years, Schindler's List, Steven Spielberg directed it, won the Academy Award in honor of Oscar Schindler. Yeah, he's gotten that honor. Well, Franz and Hermina and others have. So he's not the only one that got it. In fact, the Weinockers got their honor 10 years before he got his. Theirs came in 83, his came in 93. And by the way, if you went to Yad Vashem or looked in their website, you would see it's Oscar and Emily Schindler together receiving the honor. That was his wife, who the movie pretty much left out. So he didn't do it all by himself. And no one does. Terrible. And and you don't, you're not doing this by yourself either. You've got That's true. <laughs> a great family, a great wife, great friends supporting yeah. you along this journey. Now, Absolutely. I'll tell you, it was something else watching you. I might have taken a picture of this. Watching you and then seeing the Statue of Liberty behind you. And I got mm. chills considering that many who were persecuted by Nazi Germany and avoided death flew, fleed to America. And I'm like... It's so fitting to watch this speech with the Statue of Liberty in the background. That brought me chills. Wow. Yeah, you know, because that was to my back. That's, that's the neat thing about the setting for where the Museum of Jewish Heritage is located there in Battery Park, lower Manhattan there. That's a beautiful setting. So, so wow. I, I missed that, that the Statue of Liberty, you can see out that window. I, I knew there was a great view of the waterfront there. So, yeah, it's kind of symbolic then to what you're saying. That there's that, and obviously that was the message of the Statue of Liberty. You know, give me, you're tired, you're poor, you're persecuted, come on in. And so, unfortunately, in this time period of the 1930s, as the Holocaust persecution stage is growing, and then comes the murderous stage once the war breaks out, the United States and many other countries weren't letting many in. The idea of refugees, no way. And so that's part of the tragedy of this period, that what more help could have been done than it wasn't, which makes what Oscar Schindler did or Franz and Mean Weinacher and other righteous very remarkable and unfortunately unusual that most weren't willing to help, but they did. And, uh, well, that's the other thing, because there was a whole network then that the Weinachers created of people mm-hmm. who were literally afraid, and you called him sort of a salesman to try and convince people to get his help, you know, to help him. And I thought that was an interesting aspect as well to your speech. Yeah, no, good take. And I've had some people mention that, that they weren't aware, they knew a few of these rescue-type stories that maybe people took someone in their own home, which the Weinachers did, sometimes up to 10 in their home. But Franz got support from a resistance group in the Netherlands, and he was then, he created a rescue network of placing Jews, of children to adults of various ages, in other people's homes. He was being funded so he could pay them. Uh, Franz Weinacher Jr., one of the sons, says, if my father didn't pay these people, none of them would have helped. We don't know that. Franz himself, in his, the things I got, the materials, didn't speak to that as a criticism. It was just, But it was, a, it was always challenging because as soon as there might be a problem for that family who took a Jewish individual in, it often led to they won't keep at it. And so there was a constant hassle and a lot of shifting people back and forth, or sometimes taking them in their own home temporarily till they could find a new placement place. So, you know, when you think about that, how many people would be constantly going through all these hassles? Just think of a, you're on a job and you've got this project, and it's going to be a long project, some months, and yet it just keeps, you get one obstacle after another, most people would give up, and they didn't. 
Now, you mentioned jobs. I'm pretty sure Vinocker, the man or uh, husband or wife, either of them had a job, right? So this kind of cut into the actual living that they were making, and that became their life. For that two-year period, that was their life. So the fact that they were getting some funding helped support them in this operation. But in fact, Franz was already doing a black market business prior to getting involved. And he was told by the LO, the resistance group that was helping hide people, that's kind of supporting him and me doing this, is that you have to quit that job. You can't go in the cities and sell this food that's all black market because if you get arrested, it's all over. Don't take that risk. We need you to focus just on helping these people, which is risky enough. So for that two-year period, people wondered in the local towns, what is he doing to make a living? There was gossip about that. They didn't quite know. Now, after the war is over and liberation comes, he had to go get a real job again. And uh, just a little quick anecdote about that. He ends up, after a few months, he lands at a job at the Zwanenberg meatpacking plant, in the main good-sized city near the Moss, maybe 10 miles away. And he stayed there till he retired later in life. And who did he help save but a nephew and the nephew's wife of that plant owner who survived elsewhere. So he had a job for life. Now, I know you 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 took this on as a project, but you also had a job, didn't you? What, what were you doing before you stumbled upon this story? Yes, my last uh, so-called real job where I earned a living was I ran a management consulting business for over 25 years, emphasizing leadership and performance management and organizational effectiveness. And I wrote books related to that, such as coaching and mentoring for dummies and communicating effectively for dummies. It was interesting, the Making a Positive Difference program now that I, is one of the venues is workplaces. It was one of my clients that suggested it. She, when I was just telling her about the story and I was still doing the service with my business, she just thought for her, the, the thing that instantly resonated, even though she didn't know the whole story and hadn't read the book, she said, I'm getting ethics as a principle of this story that it teaches, which is one of the values I try to reinforce in my department. Come on in. And that started me on the path of, hey, workplaces can be any workplace that value, has good core values, values having a positive culture. This works beautifully. So my former business, my wife will often say, my former business, my early career, I was even a history teacher. So all these things have come full circle with the journey with this story. You know, what's interesting is they had a lot of World War II. And by the way, I appreciate your love of history. That is awesome and that you were able, you you felt comfortable. Because I also feel like there's this comfort that people who have a job are like, no, I can't leave this one thing to do another. But you proved you can. Yes. You know, you never know where life takes you. I mean, if it was up to my wife, maybe I would be happily retired in full leisure. You know, I was at a time where I was going to start winding down my business anyway, and then boom, this came up. So this is less of a, it's probably more of a vocation than an occupation. I'm trying to at least break even with my expenses and all this. But, you know, in essence, it isn't so much about the money at all. It's about touching people with this story, which is what's, become occupation, vocation, my life away from when I'm having leisure and family and all that, which I never expected. And that's kind of a neat development that's come out of it. And I think you honestly, I hate to say it, but I feel like you got out of the job force in a sense at the right time because the open door policy that you seem to have doesn't really exist anymore. Would you say that's accurate 
as far as a business goes, like you can't really talk about this amongst people because they won't understand or they don't want to, they don't care about it enough. Well, what's interesting, when I go into workplaces with this and we get into the discussion portion after they've heard the storytelling, uh, that actually opens a lot of things up. And while you may not be talking about what's going on in the outside world, although people do informally anyway, uh, this prompts a lot of good discussion. And we even hear concerns at times come up about the, you know, the divisiveness in our country. We shouldn't be having that. We should have more respect and unity going on. And the story prompts that. And whether you know, we don't get into political dialogues in the workplace, and we don't have to steer them from it most of the time anyway, but it's the whole, or now look at yourself. Right. And what can you do to make it? If you took the approach that every day you're going to do your job, wherever you work, whatever job role you had, that I want to make a positive difference. Wow, what an impact you'd have. That's mm-hmm. the approach, and that's what people take away from this, that I've really been able to have that message resonate. Now, I don't know if I'm sure you've done your research because you've researched a lot, but do you feel like there is an anti-Semitic trend in the workplace or not so much? Uh, again, I'm you know not in a variety of workplaces. You know, I get the, you know informally I, less. Do I see it there? It's, we see it in society, and what I think we tend to see is you know, when people act out their prejudices, their intolerances, their biases. Well, they may do things subtly in the workplace, and tend, people tend to be more subtle than blatant than, than would have been 50 years ago. It's more outside the workplace that the worst comes. But not that they don't happen in workplaces. Certainly, you know, where did the Me Too movement come from? Workplaces. You know, all the you know, people of power with sexual harassment and other misconducts, which is all terrible. So, yeah, anti-Semitism is in workplaces, oh, certainly. And we see it happen in schools sometimes, too with graffiti and other things like that and other forms of, you know, hate, racism, homophobism, especially. So yeah, no place has been immune to it. And it's just, again, part of the, the plague or the poison that's still part of Western cultures, and United by, States and Europe in particular. And by the way, this is why the binoculars are so, um, they stand out because yes. they, they were not judgmental like that. They were very, all right, well, whoever you are, we're going to welcome you in. And I feel like, again, that part of society has eroded big time. Yeah, you know, and it's, we, you know, you can state those opinions all day long and this and that. What's been neat is, and, and you know, it's like you've been in now and almost like you were in a number of my audiences because that concern comes up that you've raised. But what's been neat, at least in the audiences I'm exposed to, is, and maybe they're not voicing it, but I'm getting most people going, therefore, the positive values that they demonstrated, we need to have more emphasis of today. And I Great believe that. Away. And I, I know you do radio as well as podcasting. Yes. Or looking into that. Uh, do you ever get to take callers on your when you're on the show? I've had uh, a couple of the radio shows that did have callers, and I have done that and, and welcome that. It's It's a fun thing to do. How is, I'm sure the radio listeners really gravitate toward this story. Yes, as those who come to the presentations do. When, every, when people get a chance to hear a little bit about the story and the inspirational aspects of it, yeah, it, it pulls good people. And that, that's the reassuring thing for me. I think there's far more good people than not in this country.
It's just that it doesn't take many to make the noise that says, well, the negative is outweighing the positive. But there's still, there's far more positive. We just need to emphasize it more. And this story sparks it for people all the time. Oh, no, I'm I'm very sure of that. You know, Luke Bryan has a great song, Most People Are Good, and you're certainly tapping into that. And this story also hits home, as I'm thinking of it, because they were blue-collar, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, middle-class workers doing yeah. something heroic and not relying on the elites to do something for them. Of course, the elites in Nazi Germany wanted to kill the Jews back then, but they were the they were representative of who... Who, uh, who we all should be and who we all want to be, which is someone who rolls up our sleeves and says, let's do this no matter what. Yes, and it's the line that I use in my presentation that I've had early on audiences give me is that these are these were ordinary people who at one time in their life did something very extraordinary. And it's the whole idea that individuals can make a difference. And it's not about how much money you have or how much fame you have, it's how much character you have. And it's really, uh, I'm talking now from somebody I met at the National Publicity Summit who writes for Psychology Today, and she's very much tuned into the character aspect that this story has. And that's where the lessons come from. It's about the quality of person you are more than the quantity of money or anything else of status that you have. And they, they demonstrated that, of course, as you picked up very well. Well, Marty, thank you for joining us on this update. You were in New York the last couple of weeks. It sounds like I had a great time, a very Absolutely. informational time as well. And please send my regards to your wife. I, can we name her Leah? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, my wife, Leah, who I'm glad she got to meet you as well. She was very pleased to do so. And you part of what made our trip to New York very pleasurable. So we will do this again and keep us updated. Do you have a newsletter circulating about where your whereabouts are? I have on my website a calendar of events. And so my website is www.martyabrownstein, which is B-R-O-U-N-S-T-E-I-N.com. And that's where people can see where I'm going to be speaking next. And it's right now the calendar takes them through 2019, and soon we'll post what's going to be happening in the first part of 2020. I know. We're almost there. Isn't that crazy how time flew? (laughs) So uh, thanks again, Marty. We'll uh, definitely catch up with you soon on Keep It Real with Alexander Garrett. All right. All right. Thanks so much. We'll be back soon enough with another edition. Stay tuned. Hey, Marty, thank you so much. This Uh, was so good. Alex, you're terrific.